Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they change laws, change society, or even earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. Just days before Chicago's ultra-swanky, state-of-the-art theater opened to the public, Patrick Jennings took a tour and was appalled. Jennings was a well-respected captain of Engine Company 13, a fire station housed in a three-story building less than a block from the theater on West Randolph Street. Like much of the town, and really the nation, he'd been eager to see the fancy new building unveiled for the public. But what he saw in November of 1903 certainly didn't look state-of-the-art to him. For starters, there was no backstage phone. By 1903, telephones weren't in every home yet, but they weren't novelties either. The number of phones nationwide was in the midst of exploding from nearly 600,000 phones at the turn of the century to 2.2 million phones by 1905. It was common for a phone to be in a public building, especially one touting itself as high-tech. And yet, Jennings noticed that this fancy-schmancy theater had none. The firefighter in him noticed other shortcomings, too, like none of the exits were labeled. Many were, in fact, concealed by thick curtains. There was no fire alarm system, no sprinkler system, no fire buckets. The only thing Jennings noticed by way of firefighting equipment were a half dozen canisters of a product called Killfire, a dry chemical you were supposed to throw at flames to douse them before they spread. Jennings asked what was up of his tour guide, a department retiree named William Sallers, who'd been hired to serve as fireman of the theater house, a job created for public places because fires were so rampant at the time. Sallers said, I know, I know, but my bosses are already aware, and anyway, if I bring it up again, I might just get fired. Jennings said, man, if this place catches fire, you're going to be in trouble. It would take only about five weeks for the words to prove prophetic. On December 30th, 1903, in a theater filled mostly with women and children who had just celebrated Christmas and were readying to ring in the new year, a lamp spit out a spark, and Chicago's celebrated Iroquois Theater, dubbed absolutely fireproof in his marketing material, went up in flames, killing about 600 people and igniting one of the most expansive and futile criminal investigations in the city's history. Before the Industrial Revolution, it's safe to say that people didn't get outside of their communities much, at least not on a huge scale. People traveled, sure, but typically not en masse, and you certainly didn't have a ton of folks regularly traveling from different parts of the country to converge on a place in the way that was becoming more common at the end of the 19th century. The 1800s were a time of change. Technology was changing throughout society, 
This is from a little documentary about the history of theater I found posted 12 years ago on YouTube by a user known as the future Mrs. Lynch. Europe's farming economy shifted to an economy controlled by the big factories of the Industrial Revolution, the period of time when machines replaced hand tools in many trades. You wouldn't think that the invention of the steam engine would have a major impact on the theater, but it did. The steam engine made it possible to transport theater to areas that had never had the opportunity to see theater regularly. This was true stateside, too, of course. Basically, it went like this. The tools developed in the Industrial Revolution made people's jobs a bit easier, which in turn meant that people had more free time. With that free time, they did more things that had previously been reserved only for the upper crust, like, say, going to the theater, which was becoming an increasingly accessible form of entertainment. Shows would be imported from Europe and then tour America's big cities, drawing hundreds of people from rural towns who could hop on a train and make a day of the outing. Theater became a very fashionable pastime, an actual fad. By the late 1800s, theater and other live entertainment were in endless demand, as common to the people of that day as movies are to us today. As theater audiences grew, so did theater buildings, which, as I mentioned, piqued some concern. The issue at the time wasn't the fear of mass shootings or even pandemics, though the latter was close on the horizon, but rather of fires, which were far harder to control at the turn of the 20th century than they are today. Now, Chicago knew the dangers better than most cities because the whole damn town had been nearly wiped out by a blaze in 1871. What exactly caused the Great Chicago Fire has always been a matter of debate. Some believed it was ignited after Catherine and Patrick O'Leary's cow kicked over a lantern in their barn, while others think some teenagers caused it by accident. But regardless of how it started, the results of the disaster are less debated. The blaze raged for more than 24 hours, killing some 300 people and leaving another 100,000 homeless. The inferno swallowed about 3.3 square miles, including parts of the city's bustling downtown. Some 17,000 buildings were destroyed. After that fire, the city passed laws requiring new buildings to be made of fireproof materials like brick, marble, and limestone. The materials were much more expensive than wood, but it had been Chicago's many wood-framed homes and businesses that had allowed the Great Conflagration, as some called it, to spread so unstoppably. Still, people are resistant to change, especially change that costs them money. Plenty of businesses ignored the new building laws and stuck with wood anyway. Then another fire happened, smaller this time, but still not good. The second fire in 1874 killed about 20 people and destroyed more than 800 buildings over 60 acres. Then, as is still the case today, change was slow when only lives were at stake. You had to convince people that it made economical sense to change the status quo. But even then, it wasn't easy. Corners were cut so frequently, in fact, that one news publication took it upon itself to run a fictional story in its pages on February 13, 1875. The Chicago Times piece was headlined, Burned Alive, and it told a very realistic-sounding tale about a fire inside a Chicago playhouse that killed nearly 160 people. As filmmaker Austin McConnell explained, the article described... 
Victims, many trampled to death, were pulled from the rubble as blackened corpses. Listed in the paper are the initials of numerous casualties, a custom during that time. The casual reader at first believed the story was true. I mean, why wouldn't they? It wasn't until the story's end that people realized the whole tale had been entirely hypothetical, a tale meant to alert readers to the fire dangers present in Chicago's theater district. It was a what-if story, basically an experiment to see if change could be, ahem, sparked by printing what could happen if it didn't. It did not go as hoped. This piece of shock-mock journalism? A public service of sorts. Chicago Times readers are, of course, equal parts disgusted and incensed. A flood of letters pour in, telling the paper off for such ill-conceived sensationalism. The Times' rival paper, the Chicago Tribune, publishes a scathing article in response, reporting that one local woman had died from the shock of seeing what she believed were her husband's initials in the article. Of course, this story is also made up in the Tribune's half-hearted attempt to showcase how such fake news articles are in poor taste. The city's readers eventually walk away from the episode disgusted at both publications hoaxes. Respect is lost, but so too is the message the Chicago Times had hoped the reader would walk away with, that Chicago theaters are in desperate need of safety improvements. A quarter century and change later, in early 1903, construction on the new Iroquois Theater began, though newspapers were heralding its arrival as early as June of 1902. The Baltimore Sun ran a brief promising that the new Playhouse will be the finest theater in America with a seating capacity of about 2,000 people. The building would be designed by architect Benjamin H. Marshall to be the most luxurious in the country. Marshall was well aware of the fire fears inherent in such a setting. Fresh in people's memories were news stories of the worst theater fire in modern history, the 1881 inferno that engulfed the Ring Theater in Vienna, killing hundreds within minutes. There's never been consensus as to the exact body count in that disaster, though estimates typically range from 400 to above 1,000. The History Channel settles on at least 620 as its toll. To avoid a repeat of such horrific history, Marshall assured the public that he would research all theater fires and design a building with patron safety front and center. From a video posted by the Chicago Fire Department. Benjamin Marshall had said before the theater opened he had studied every theater disaster in history to avoid any problems at the Iroquois, and that in the event of fire, if all 30 exits were used, the place could be emptied within five minutes. His assurances went a long way in pacifying the public and, in fact, were echoed in the words absolutely fireproof, emblazoned in boldface type on the upper right corner of each playbill handed out to patrons. In fairness, this wasn't the first theater to declare itself fireproof. The Majestic Theater in Boston used that language in its newspaper ads. A news story labeled Watson's new theater in New York City, quote, one of the safest fireproof structures in greater New York, end quote. Fires were common enough that public spaces routinely addressed the potential, and news about pending construction often included details about supposedly incombustible materials being used in the process. Construction for the Iroquois didn't go smoothly. 
It was plagued from the start, from weather delays and labor disputes. But things got worse in November of 1903 when New York bricklayers went on strike at all sites connected with the company building the Iroquois, a construction outfit called the George A. Fuller Company. A wire story in the Moline Dispatch began, quote, A general strike against the George A. Fuller Construction Co. throughout the United States and the Iron League in New York, as well as all subcontracts being done for the Fuller Company, was ordered in Chicago yesterday by the Executive Board of the International Bridge and Structural Iron Workers Association. The order, which was telegraphed throughout the country, will immediately tie up an estimated aggregate of $20 million worth of new buildings in 10 of the principal cities of the country and will affect at once 10,000 men, end quote. While the matter was settled fairly quickly, it still cost the workers time, yet the theater's key investors were adamant that the theater would still open in the fall of that year because the holiday season promised a rush of business and the Iroquois' debut performance had already been selected. Rather than delaying the grand opening, Al Heyman, Marcus Claw, and Abram Erlinger, the leading members of the theatrical syndicate who own large interests in the theater, decided instead to open with the theater unfinished. Now, the average person walking through the theater wouldn't feel like it was unfinished because the place on the whole looked amazing. It was opulent and extravagant. Thick drapery fell from the ceiling. The seats were covered in velvet. Everything was gilded and ornate. You'd have to really be paying attention to notice that, for example, the fire escapes weren't finished. Some were merely iron platforms screwed onto the building with no stairs installed. The vents on the building ceiling, which were designed to route smoke and hot air up and out of the building, were nailed shut to keep rain from coming in. On November 23rd, the theater opened as planned with its debut performance of Mr. Bluebeard, a musical that was flimsy on storyline but rich in spectacle. This was truly an ensemble piece, employing hundreds of actors, dancers, and even aerial artists to perform on stage and above it, plus hundreds more to work as stagehands, costumers, and in other backstage roles. For those wanting a star in the performance, a comedian named Eddie Foy filled the bill, promising to be a huge draw. Foy had been born in 1856 as Edward Fitzgerald, the son of an immigrant Irish tailor in Lower Manhattan. After his father died, his mother moved Eddie and his siblings to Chicago in the hopes that it would be easier to survive there, but no such luck. Life wasn't easy for the Foy's, but Eddie would later boast that he was born with the ability to dance, and while that might have been a slight exaggeration, he was on the streets performing for change as early as eight years old, according to the book Tinderbox by Anthony P. Hatch. At age 12, he quit school altogether, making ends meet by performing where he could and also hawking newspapers. He was still in Chicago in 1871 when he survived the Great Chicago Fire at age 15. When the flames were first spotted, Eddie was handed his 18-month-old nephew and told to find a safe place to wait it out, after which he and his family would reunite once the danger had passed. Eddie went to a friend's house that he figured couldn't possibly be touched by the flames because it was on the other side of Chicago's main business district, and it didn't occur to Eddie, or anyone else for that matter, 
that the fire would possibly spread through that. But it did spread, and Eddie brought his toddler nephew to the Lake Michigan shore where thousands of people gathered and watched helplessly as the city they called home was devoured by fire one block at a time. Eddie later said, quote, Every street I crossed was so thronged with vehicles, all lashing ahead at a trot or a gallop, that I risked our lives at every crossing, end quote. It took days before he reunited with the rest of his family, all of whom amazingly survived, although the same wasn't true for their possessions. Per Hatch's book, all the voice had left was a sofa and a feather bed. It was around the same time that Eddie took his first solid steps toward a career as a professional performer. He and a friend started a song and dance routine called Finnegan and Fitzgerald, but they worried that their act sounded too Irish, so they changed their name to Edwards and Foy, and Eddie's surname was permanently changed to the latter. He quickly became successful with an act that included song, dance, and jokes, often all at once. His heyday predated film, but here's a fun imitation of Eddie Foy done in 1940 by his son, Eddie Foy Jr., in a movie called Lillian Russell. I know a very wicked man. I knew him when a lad. See, I never met his equal telling lies. And although he takes delight in doing everything that's bad, he thinks he'll go to heaven when he dies. Ah, but when a child, he robbed his dear old grandma in a sleep. He stole two golden teeth out of her jaws. Now he's been a kleptomaniac since he began the creep. But the neighbors think that he's all right because he goes to church on Sunday. He was incredibly popular, as evidenced in a San Francisco call review of his 1900 show, A Night in Town. It read that Foy was, quote, enthusiastically received, and those who were waiting to see him saw the same old Eddie Foy that has been responsible for so many overworked laughter muscles and broken waistbands, end quote. Granted, he wasn't everybody's cup of tea. One reviewer called him a bird with one feather, a rare bird perhaps, but still exhibiting that one distressing feather of a single talent, that of grotesqueness. Ouch. In short, he wasn't considered the highest brow entertainment, but he drew big crowds, which is why the Iroquois owners hired him for a then whopping $800 a week, which translates to nearly $27,000 a week in today's money. But Foy wasn't the show's biggest expense. That honor went to its extravagant set design, which included hundreds of colored lights that created a, quote, brilliant display of illumination unlike anything the crowd had ever seen before, end quote. That's according to Hatch. These bulbs could sometimes get unbelievably hot, and while the Iroquois building had been designed not to spread fire, the same couldn't be said about the sets contained within that building. For five weeks, performances of Mr. Bluebeard went off without a hitch. In the show, Eddie Foy performed in drag as a woman named Anne, whose sister Fatima was trying to avoid marrying the dreaded Bluebeard, a rich, conniving oaf of a man. The story was based on a fairy tale in which the Bluebeard character warns his young, beautiful wife not to enter one of the rooms of his castle. 
She enters the forbidden room anyway and discovers the murdered bodies of his former wives. If you're curious, yes, this was a comedy. Foy was adept at drag, and for this performance, he wore a bustle and red, pigtailed wig. One of the highlights involved him singing a routine based on the old woman who lived in the shoe, backed by pony ballet dancing girls. The most spectacular elements of the show were in dream sequences, one of which was featured in a full-page Chicago Tribune advertisement for the show that showed an image of a woman flying above the heads of the audience. Because this was an etching and not a photograph, newspaper readers couldn't tell that the image was of young aerial ballerina Nellie Reed, but they would know her name soon enough. The first few weeks of the show had been generally successful, but not as big a hit as the showrunners would have liked. This might have been due to middling reviews of the show, not the theater, mind you, which reviewers raved about, but the show itself, which they called all style and little substance. Another factor for the mediocre turnout, though, was mediocre weather. In mid-December, the temperature fell to 12 below zero, making it the city's coldest day on record in nearly four decades. This was the type of cold that killed people. And on top of that, there was another strike, this time of liverymen, or taxi drivers, which made it harder for people to get downtown. Still, the matinee performance on December 30th promised to be a sellout. Eddie Foy, the show's star, had planned to bring his whole family that day, but couldn't secure the tickets. He was disappointed, but determined to at least bring his oldest son, six-year-old Brian. When the two got to the theater, they saw that management hadn't been bluffing when they said it would be a full house. The theater was built to accommodate about 1,600 people, with about 700 of those seats overlooking the orchestra pit. The least expensive seats were high up, looking down on the stage from the back of the auditorium. But there were still cheaper spots than those, thanks to a policy common at the time that allowed walk-ins to buy tickets from 35 cents that had no seats assigned. Those viewers would stand. Based on the box office receipts of nearly $1,800, it's estimated that at least 1,840 people were inside the packed house, meaning it was over capacity by, at minimum, 15%. While it was a matinee showing, it was still a big, expensive outing for the people attending, so most wore their fanciest clothes and jewelry for the affair, which felt appropriate in such an ornate setting. The venue is illustrious. A capacity of 1,602 attendees spread throughout three impeccably adorned audience levels. The theater's single entrance, a broad and beautiful stairway that leads from the foyer to the balcony level, allows patrons of all shapes and sizes to see and be seen, regardless of the price of their ticket. An ornate, 60-foot-high ceiling held up by white marbled walls is awe-inspiring, and a glass skylight over the stage makes every performance look magical. Architect Benjamin Marshall was especially proud of one element of his theater's design. There were no back passageways for the cheaper sections, so even those who paid the cheapest fees commingled with the rich by way of the same main staircase. Surely there were no safety concerns with that. 32-year-old Lula Greenwald wore a black woolen skirt, a peacock blue blouse, and name-brand shoes as she walked with her 10-year-old son, Leroy. He wore new shoes and a double-breasted blue serge coat with matching knickers. 
Lula, a dainty 110 pounds standing at 5 foot 6, also donned fancy jewelry for the affair. As her husband later told reporters, Lula went to the theater wearing a solitaire diamond ring, a plain wedding ring, a ruby ring surrounded by diamonds, another ring with three opals surrounded by emeralds and diamonds, and a sunburst pin with pearls and an amethyst center. Lula and her son attended the show with a woman named Matilda Goss and her two daughters, 13-year-old Verona and 5-year-old Helen. Both Lula and Matilda's husbands were lithographers, otherwise known as printmakers, neither of whom joined their wives and children at the show. There were scores of attendees like them. Men, typically the breadwinners of the era, were stuck at work on this Wednesday afternoon. But the women had their children home from school. It seemed a great excuse for a highbrow cultural outing that didn't cost as much as usual thanks to the discounted matinee showing. As Eddie Foy said, quote, Wednesday afternoon, the house was packed and many were standing. I was struck by the fact that I had never seen so many women and children. Even the gallery was full, end quote. Foy's own son had to sit just off stage to watch the performance. Bluebeard had three acts, the first of which enthralled the audience without hiccup. After the second intermission, the lights dimmed and the curtain was raised for act two. Several minutes in, 16 performers gathered on stage to begin a rendition of Let Us Swear It by the Pale Moonlight, a romantic song and dance routine performed in front of a painted floral backdrop of Bluebeard's castle garden. Let us swear it by the pale moonlight We love you blindly Thank you kindly Then we take it that your word you as Hatch wrote in Tinderbox, quote, The house lights were now fully extinguished and the stage was bathed in a soft blue glow from one of the backstage carbon arc lamps, a powerful spotlight that had for its source an electric current arcing between two carbon rods. Young William McMullen, an assistant electrician in charge of the spotlight, had to be careful with that heavy piece of bulky equipment. With its large metal hood and reflector mounted on a high pedestal, the spot, sometimes mistakenly called a calcium light, could generate temperatures as high as 4,000 degrees Fahrenheit, end quote. While there were eight of these spotlights in all, only the one operated by McMullen was on at this point in the performance. The solitary beam was meant to create a dreamy, moonlight setting for the song. When a tiny spark seemed to spit from the bulb, McMullen didn't panic. He noted hearing a slight crackling sound just before an orange flame appeared along the fringe of a curtain meant to keep the audience from seeing into the wings. McMullen instinctively slapped the flame with his hands, but it did no good. Soon, the tiny flame was bigger and beyond his reach. Put it out, he called to another tech worker. That worker, too, slapped at the fire in vain. On the stage, a pair of octets, one set of boys, the other of girls, sang back and forth to each other a sort of romantic call and answer, until they joined in unison for the line, Let us swear it by the pale moonlight. Austin McConnell again. One of the stage's curtains begins to burn, and wood trimming on the front of the stage 
catches fire. A stagehand rushes backstage to fetch the emergency metal canisters, and by the time he returns, some of the singers start to notice smoke. Now, at this point, the safest reaction would have been for everyone to calmly realize there might be an issue and, in orderly fashion, head for the exits. Because fires were fairly commonplace, it was well known that the panic they inspired was usually far deadlier than the actual flames. But because that potential panic was so deadly, no one on stage wanted to alert the audience, especially not when there should have been safeguards in place to stop the fire quickly. For example, theaters had started back then to have a safety curtain that would be lowered in the event of fire because the stage area was the biggest fire risk. By the way, my editor, Steve Tipton, who's on theater stages far more than I, assures me these are still in use today. These had become popular because the stage area has always been the biggest fire risk, especially the costumes and set pieces. That's because of the high-temperature lights beaming down on them. The safety curtain, usually made of asbestos at the time, was meant to contain an early blaze quickly. But the Iroquois was so new that workers fumbled in trying to figure out which lever was for the right curtain. Meanwhile, one of the stagehands grabbed the canisters of flame-retardant chemical that I mentioned earlier. Kill fire is meant to be thrown at the base of flames, but the fire in the theater is taking place high above the stage. Thus, when the stagehand throws the canisters, the chemicals spill uselessly to the ground. Embers begin to fall toward the nervous singers below, and in moments, the audience realizes the emergency. At this point, the situation draws Foy's attention. The actor had been offstage readying for his next number when he noticed bits of burning fabric falling across the stage. His thoughts immediately turned to his son, whom he handed to a stagehand to take out of the auditorium. After that, his aim shifted to keeping the crowd calm. Foy was still wearing a smock, tights, and red wig. He then ran out onto the stage. There, even as flaming bits of canvas fell all around him, This is from Fascinating Horror, a YouTube account focusing on history's greatest disasters. He appealed for calm. He encouraged the orchestra to play to reassure the crowd, and reminded them that the theatre was, as the marketing materials claimed, absolutely fireproof. Some people in the audience stood to leave, only to be chastised by people sitting near them who barked at them to sit back down. They were certain that the only danger posed was by panic. Backstage, people were rushing to finally lower the safety curtain, but had gotten snagged on its way down. Heavy black smoke started pouring toward the crowd. Above the stage, the fire had spread beyond hope. Aerialists, 12 female and 4 male trapeze artists, rushed to sidestep the flames, but one found herself too close to a burning piece of scenery. Flailing to put herself out, She lost her grip on the trapeze and fell nearly 60 feet to the stage below. She was the first to die, but nowhere near the last. As the fire inside the Iroquois Theater rapidly spread, Eddie Foy's appeals to the crowd shifted. At first, he said to stay seated and even encouraged the orchestra director to continue playing. 
The audience seemed inclined to trust him, but the actors around him were another matter because they could see just how rapidly the fire around them was spreading. It showed on their faces. Some of the chorus girls fainted. One chorus boy bolted from the stage. Author Anthony Hatch. People saw the actors were afraid, and that's when they started to get clued in that this was not how it was supposed to go. Instead of telling everyone to stay seated and trust that the building was safe, Foy changed tacks, instead urging everyone to calmly leave. Take your time, folks, he said. Don't be frightened. Go slow. Walk out calmly. His measured tone conveyed none of the utter panic he felt, panic that was increasingly evident in the audience. Foy could hear timbers crackling overhead. He saw people running toward the back of the theater, getting jammed at the doorway. Backstage, performers were being ushered outside, but the worst of the fire blocked their way. One child stood in an aisle, his eyes darting from Foy and his now smoldering red wig to a woman suspended overhead by a steel wire. She was the ballet dancer Nellie Reed, whose gauzy dress burned as quickly as paper as she writhed to free herself. A few minutes later, an engineer spied Nellie on stage. Miraculously, she'd managed to unhook her wire, but her skin was scorched and she was screaming in pain. The engineer grabbed Nellie and carried her to some rescuers who had started gathering on the street, but Nellie's burns were too severe. She'd die within hours. Heads up, the details starting here with the fire become a little more graphic. In an effort to save the remaining performers, stagehands pushed open a set of double doors behind the stage. They opened the scenery doors. They created a huge draft with the flames going up into the loft of the theater, mixing with the superheated gas and fumes coming from the burning scenery docks. That combination proved to be devastating. It was a fireball that burst out from under the curtain and into the audience and up into the balconies, incinerating people as it went. While this move saved all but the two already dead performers, it also sealed the fates of hundreds of theater goers. People who had tried to stay calm and keep their seats, particularly in the upper levels, were killed instantaneously by what survivors could later only describe as akin to an explosion. Stuart J. Hecht of Boston College in a WTTW Chicago documentary. 70% of the people who were killed were killed then, in the balcony. And the balcony were mostly mothers and children. Seconds later, the theater plunged into darkness as the electrical switchboard was knocked out. Those still alive were in utter terror at this point. People pushed, pulled, and tore at each other to find the nearest exit. Though the Iroquois had plenty, many were obscured by thick drapes because Benjamin Marshall had deemed them eyesores. The rushed construction meant that most exits weren't labeled, so scores of people ran past perfectly good exit doors without realizing they were even there. Some found other doors but discovered that they had been blocked with accordion gates to prevent people from the cheaper upper seats from sneaking into the more expensive seats on the lower levels. Some of those doors still had ushers staffing them, but the ushers had been told not to unlock the doors and, in the fight-or-flight moment that faced them, 
defaulted to those instructions, even as masses of people begged them to unlock the doors. A lot of people perished up against those grills. One man pulled himself up through a skylight in a bathroom, but severely cut his arms while doing so. Another managed to smash his way through a pane of a door, but when he turned to help his wife follow him out, she was trampled as he watched. Can you imagine being stuck behind a crowd that's pressed up against doors that won't open, and people are behind you pushing you? And what happens? Meanwhile, the safety curtain that so many on stage had been waiting to fall caught fire too. It turned out that in attempting to cut costs, theater co-owner Will Davis hadn't paid for a curtain made only of asbestos. He'd bought a cheaper version, cut with wood pulp. In one of the most nightmarish scenes imaginable, people who made it to the fire escapes found themselves trapped. There was no place to go. Some people jumped off these platforms and died on the cobblestones below. About 125 people were found dead beneath the fire escape where a staircase should have led people to safety. The body count there was so high that the area was dubbed Death Alley. As all this was happening, firefighters responded to the scene quickly, having been alerted by people fleeing from the building. But the blaze swept through the inside so fast that by the time they made their way inside, everything was eerily quiet. One of the fire officials scouring through the balcony said, is anybody alive here? Answer me, call out, we'll get you out. And uh, he was met with silence. He said, Christ have mercy. While some bodies were burned to death while still in their seats, others had suffocated while trying to escape. Some had jumped from the upper balcony, their bodies breaking over armrests and seat backs on the lower level. Near doorways where exit paths converged, firefighters found bodies piled 10 deep. More still were trampled in the aisles and hallways. These ones were some of the hardest for firefighters to stomach because many of them were children bowled over and trampled by adults fighting to save themselves. Many of the victims were unrecognizable, not because they were burned in the fire, but because they'd been crushed beneath so many boots. The headlines the next day were heartbreaking. Dreadful loss of life in theater fire, blared the New York world in bold-faced type. 500 reported dead by fire officials. Quote, Wild panic among the women and children in the Iroquois Theater in Chicago who fought each other in mad efforts to escape and many of whom were trampled to death in the aisles, end quote. Chicago Mayor Carter Harrison Jr. vowed immediate action. He shut down all theaters in Chicago, then added museums, dance halls, and other places of amusement. Every building had to undergo safety inspections before reopening, But critics noticed that it had been employees under Harrison who had signed off on the theater being safe to open in the first place. From the Chicago Fire Department. Lots of people received blame for this. The the mayor, Carter Harrison, of course, um, the building commissioners, the building owners and the building architects all received their share of blame. Proving criminal liability was tough, however. Even though corners were cut and palms were greased to ensure the Iroquois opened before it was truly finished, 
No one had intended for people to die, and the concept of civil liability, as in fined for damages, was in its infancy. Even though there was evidence that the building's design was poor and that it lacked adequate safety features, the architect, the owners, and others were found innocent because, as the judge put it, they weren't the ones who placed the light that burned the curtain. No one was ever held accountable for what happened to the approximately 600 victims in the theater, about 150 of whom were children. But the tragedy did help spark change. All public buildings have to have working fire alarms and sprinkler systems, as well as clearly marked and lit exit doors, ones that easily open outward, not inward. This is a documentary called Downtown Disasters. Another safety measure adopted after the fire? Exit lights, which would stay illuminated in the event a theater lost power. And one of the most important life-saving devices? The crash bar. That's the push bar you see across doors in public places that make it easy to unlatch and open so that no one is fumbling with a door handle in a panic. Another change is subtler, but just as important, and that was a change in language. With the burning of the Iroquois, it became clear that fireproof buildings just weren't a thing. And in fact, by labeling places fireproof, you risk lulling people into a false sense of security. Many of the people who survived that day had done one simple thing. They had left as soon as they felt uneasy. Rather than taking assurances that everything was fine, that the building couldn't catch fire, the scores who simply got up from their seats and walked calmly outside lived to tell the tale. To research this episode, I read Anthony P. Hatch's Tinderbox, the Iroquois Theater Disaster of 1903, watched the cited documentaries, and also read a few retrospective stories. I covered a different fire, a workplace blaze, in the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory episode of Season 1, which, if you haven't heard yet, I encourage you to check out. Special thanks to Charlie McCarran for producing and performing the song Let Us Swear It by the Pale Moonlight, and also to Randy Sullivan of the University of Oregon Libraries, which provided us the sheet music from the archives. Let us swear it by the pale moonlight. We love you blindly. of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This episode was written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Jennifer Swatek. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. 
If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod, and check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. 